Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13. This is God's Word, written a long time ago, but the Spirit of God, when He wrote it, had you in mind, as well as all those saints who have come before and read it as well. God's word for you now. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your blessing upon your word. It's perfect. We're not. Would your spirit be pleased to work within us for Christ's sake, amen. You know what it takes to be a good teacher? I mean, you probably could answer that. I think half the families in the room have some uh, formal affiliation with educational process, whether that be having students or having teachers or having uh, faculty or uh, administrators. Uh, Praise God, substantial portion of this church I was blessed to be involved in that. It helps to have lots of kids. You could give me all sorts of answers, but I, I really think there's one primary thing. Some people might say, well, they have to love the material. It helps, but no. We know lots of people that love the material and are terrible teachers. Well, you have to love kids. Well, no, I know lots of people that love children and make for terrible teachers. No, I think a good teacher has to have such a sense of fulfillment that all the work, the hard work, the hours and the hours and the energy and the effort and the correction and the the just painstaking just energy expended is all worth it in the moment where the light bulb cuts on. Where the child's like, oh, I get it. Two plus two equals four. Well, yes. Your parents have been saying that for five years. I've been saying that for five years. But okay, yes, you've got it. Yay. And that moment uh, makes it all worth it, right? Uh, those of us that tend to be kind of rather poor teachers are the ones that uh, we don't get excited enough about that moment and we run out of gas and we want them to have the next light bulb moment kind of uh, immediately following. This portion in Matthew chapter 16 is one of the great light bulb cutting on moments kind of in the scriptures, really in 
the life of the early church. And interestingly, it's not early on in the ministry of Jesus. He's been teaching his disciples for a rather long time, and they're not perhaps quite as quick to get it as we would have hoped they would be. We've seen in the previous kind of two and a half chapters, Jesus has kind of poured on the miracles for them to help them kind of catch on that he's something special. And they would have already known he was special. He's their rabbi. They've sacrificed their entire career. They've sacrificed their entire life to follow him and to sit at his feet and to learn from his teaching. They've given up all of their income. They're basically poor kind of traveling students. That's all they've got our college students would understand. But here in 14, 15, 16, Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle to kind of help them kind of get their brains, ram it through their minds that he's not just a good man. In fact, actually, he's not just a great man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a great teacher. He is God himself in human form. He's God wrapped in humanity, the God-man. We have the kind of moment where they, they first begin to verbalize and articulate their understanding of, of who Jesus is in this regard. Uh, Matthew tells it so eloquently. Jesus has kind of moved into a new district. He's uh, significant where he is, but not for the sermon today. And he asks kind of the generic leading question. Perfect kind of educational opportunity. It's open-ended. They can't just give him some sort of kind of trite answer. It provokes a conversation. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was his um, own title that he used for himself that was specifically designed, as they would go back and look on it later. It's when he's highlighting his divine nature. Not just speaking of himself in the third person, but specifically identifying that he is God to them. That's his title. Who do they say that I am? And again, if you're thinking kind of from the educational perspective, this is question of all questions. The answer to this question determines everything. I mean, if they say, well, you're just a dude. You're just a guy. Well, great. When he dies in a handful of short chapters, what are you going to do then? Or you're just a really, you know, you're an interesting teacher. I just like listening to what you have to say. Or you're a nice man or a good neighbor or things like that. Well, uh, that's the kind of person that's enjoyable to be around. But, you know, when they phase out of your life, it's not the end of the earth. This is the question of all questions. It's the question that uh, the answer shapes everything about life afterwards. And honestly, for us, dear friends, the question is no different today. I mean, as we wrestle through this text, Matthew is writing this in such a way that it's designed to provoke this thought in our mind. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we believe that he is? Because friends, inconsistency here is terrible. 
for us to think one thing and live in light of another. They interestingly answer his question, and their answer is not a cop-out. It's technically true. They throw out a list of names. Well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. We read this just a couple of chapters prior, right? In verse, I mean, in chapter 14. Herod's already said that he thinks that this is who Jesus is. He's perhaps John the Baptist raised to life, reincarnated, resurrected. Others would say Elijah, and this would have been taking the prophecy in uh, Malachi and 2 Kings. Others, and this is the interesting one that Matthew throws in here, others would think Jeremiah. Jeremiah, because he was a holy man, but his message sounded a bit grumpy. He dealt a lot with uh, rebuking people for their sin and uh, didn't just tell them everything was going to be all right. He actually told them that they needed to be made right with God. All of these answers are the kind of answers that we hear today. They're the, he's a good man kind of answers. If we were to go out on the streets today and ask the people that we ran into, who is Jesus? These are the kind of answers that we would hear. Well, I think he's a good man. You're not wrong. It's not enough. Well, I think he was a good teacher. Again, you're not wrong. Not far enough. Well, I think he was just really, really wise. Well, you're not wrong, but not enough. They throw out the answers that we would hear. These are the ones that everybody would expect. They're good answers for good men. In fact, actually, they're good answers for great men. I mean, John the Baptist, we've already found out, is the holiest man to live. Elijah's the greatest of the prophets. Jeremiah is absolutely marvelous, influential in his ministries, or the, the best of the best. Jesus wisely then, 15, redirects. Look, uh, they say I'm a nice man. They say I'm a good teacher. They say I'm a good neighbor. They say I have wise things to say. All those are good and great and everything, but what do you say? Who do you, the disciples, think that I am? And verse 16, I love how you get, it reads like Simon Peter. Simon just jumps in. He, he, Peter's not, he, he's not ready to wait. He's just going to go ahead and blurt it all out. You're the Christ. Now, for us, that doesn't have a great deal of significance because many of us were raised kind of incorrectly to believe that Christ was the last name for Jesus. It's not. It's like president is not the first name for Biden. Right? It's a title. President is what he is in his office. It's what he is in his, it's his title. It's how he serves. Christ is the title of his office. He is the anointed, the one, the one who is filled with the Spirit of God unlike anyone else in history. He's the one who has been prophesied as the anointed one all throughout history. We could trace this title back even all the way to the garden where you have the curse given to the serpent, where the promise would be that there would be someone coming that would destroy sin and evil and death and hell, and he would be the Christ of God. Now, interestingly, the Jews have really at this point kind of 
hijacked that term and reduced it to something small. They've reduced it to like a political hero, right? Who was the Christ for the Jews at this time? Well, he was a political hero who would come and overthrow the the grumpy Romans, right? The ones who've got us uh, subjugated, the ones who are enacting their power over us. Well, the Christ is the political hero that will come and save the day. And that's how potentially it could be read. Well, maybe the disciples, they just understand him to be a political hero. They go the same route as everyone else. They think he's a good man. They think perhaps he's even a great man, but that's where it stops. Well, thankfully, Peter, in his great wisdom, I don't mean that sarcastically at all, in his great wisdom, he clarifies And we're going to see throughout this passage a number of things that we just get to to kind of revel in the beauty of King Jesus. I want you to just marvel at how lovely Jesus is. Well, who is this Jesus? He's the Christ. He's not just a political hero. He's not just someone who's going to become a king and conquer the Romans. He's not just a nice man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a a wise prophet. He is the Son of God of the living God. He's God incarnate. This is where we have our minds stretched a little bit as we contemplate the nature of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is just like you and me and in the same time, no way like you and me. He's just like you and me in that he is fully human, 100% human, in fact. When we go to have a conversation about Jesus, to say that he's anything less than human or anything more than human is incorrect. He is man. But prior to being human and man, and while being human and man, He's God. Interestingly, as part of the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, right? One God, three persons, happily existing prior to creation, agreed upon a plan to create, agreed upon a plan to redeem, and have enacted that inside creation. As part of that, the second person of that Trinity stepped inside creation. Rather than looking at at time and space and matter and energy from the outside, second person of the Trinity, the Son, stepped inside. And interestingly, when He stepped inside creation, friends, creation, matter, energy, time, space, they're all the same thing. They're just packaged differently. So to step inside creation, he put on time and space and energy and matter. He put on flesh. He put on humanity. So Peter's answer here is, honestly, it's bigger than Peter even understands. I bet you if you you asked him to work out kind of all of the bits of the theology, he wouldn't have been able to do it at this point yet. He will later. You are the anointed one of God who is God. Now friends, that's a totally different answer than you're a good man. 
Because honestly, there are lots of people that we know that are good men or good women that we ignore constantly. I will give you an illustration. Your doctor. Every time you go to the doctor, what do they tell you? Literally, every time you go, you're an American, you walk in to see your doctor and they say, you need to eat less fried foods, you need to eat more vegetables, and you need to exercise more. And we all go, oh, I know you're so right. And we turn around and we walk out and we totally forget about it. Ah, That's not true. It might take us two days of trying, right? Our doctor is a good woman or a good man that have good, wise advice for us, but we ignore them. If Jesus is a good teacher, a wise man, it's easy for us to treat him like we do our doctor and just ignore him. The reality, friends, though, is that he is a good man and a wise man and a great teacher, but he's more than that. He's God incarnate. Verse 17, Jesus responds to uh, Peter's kind of uh, exclamation, you're God! And amazing what his response is. He could have said, well, it's about time. It's about time. Should have figured that out months ago, and he probably should have. He could have said, well, obviously... I mean, he could have been sarcastic. I'm sure I wouldn't have been a good thing, but would have been fair. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he just pours out blessing upon Peter. Look, you've recognized that which you should have already figured out. I mean, he's fed multiple towns from just loaves and fish in the last couple of weeks. He's walked on water. He's had Peter walk on water with him. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle. It should have been fairly obvious. But interestingly now, as Peter really begins to get it and explain it, what does Jesus do? He doesn't scold him. He doesn't punish him. Instead, he blesses him. I think it's so interesting, too, is uh, many of us, when we're wrestling with our faith, when we're wrestling with kind of giving life over to God, when we're kind of clinging to the bits of our life that we haven't surrendered to Him yet or perhaps even surrendered at all. It's interesting, one of the lies of the devil that we hear in our ear all of the time is, you know, I don't think I can trust Jesus with this because whatever, whatever He does isn't going to be just quite right. No, we never say it so clearly as to say, I think I'm going to do a better job than Jesus because none of us are that dumb. But we think it in different words of saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to risk my life. Like, I just, I just don't think Jesus is going to be able to maintain my life. He's not going to, he, maybe he won't take care of me, or maybe it's going to hurt, or maybe it's going to be difficult, or I'm going to have to give up this pleasure that I've been, you know, secretly harboring for years, or I'm going to have to give something up. And friends, you get to see what's Christ's reaction to people who understand that he is their God. Does he look at Peter and go, you're a bozo. You should have figured this out a long time ago. Go be miserable. No, that's not the heart of Jesus. What is the heart of the Lord God? The heart of the Lord God towards his people is one of blessing. And here, Peter catching on to an elementary school understanding. Something we are trying to teach our two-year-olds. And Jesus is like, you're going to be blessed. 
Be blessed. Your life will be better. Be blessed. And then why is he blessed? Well, because, interestingly, you've heard the voice of heaven. This message that Jesus is God is not the message of a preacher in Fort Mill, South Carolina. It is my message, but it didn't originate with me. It's not a message that originates with Matthew, the author of this book. It's not a message that originates with Peter, who verbalizes it. It's a message that originates with God himself, the triune God. This is his message. Jesus is God. So when he pours out blessing upon his children, well, that's certainly something to be thought about, right? It's not like me saying, well, go and be blessed, all of you. Go be blessed. Live your best life. Now, I I actually don't have the power to make that happen. Well, Jesus does. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, God Almighty, who is in heaven. We can marvel at the the beauty of who Jesus is. This next verse, I think, is even more staggering. And I tell you, and there's a little bit of a word play here in the Greek, which is really interesting because they're probably speaking Aramaic, so uh, cross-language language joke. Jesus makes a pun in two languages at the same time. And I tell you, you're Peter. In Greek, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, one's masculine, one's feminine. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You want to talk about how generous God is with blessing his people. I mean, how how much of a blessing he's going to give to his saints. After telling Simon he's going to bless him, he looks at him and says, oh yeah, by the way, as part of the blessing that I'm going to give you, I'm going to establish my church through you. Now, for those of us that have grown up in the church and grown up in Sunday school, we know that this is, by human standards, a terrible gamble on Jesus' part. Peter is not what we might call excellent all of the time. He tends to run his mouth before his brain catches up. He tends to be very emotional and tends to not always do it the right way. In fact, actually, he's going to be uh, the second greatest traitor in the early church. Peter, functionally, he's like the Benedict Arnold character of the early bit. I mean, you really have to think about that. And interestingly, Jesus, the God of grace, God of blessing incarnate, looks at his man who's made this proclamation and says, look, I'm going I'm to build my church through you. Mistakes and all, lingering corruption of sin and all, mess that you are, emotional, hot-headed man that you are, I'm going to build my church through you. And interestingly, we have the book of Acts. Does that happen? Absolutely it does. Right? Peter is an absolute mess at the crucifixion. He betrays Jesus terribly. They go into hiding. You have the resurrection and Peter absolutely freaks out, as rightly so, because he knows that he's a traitor. He goes to meet Jesus and talk about the, the shame of that meeting. 
Jesus, I know you're dead, but I have a sneaking suspicion. You've already figured out what I've done, right? I kind of like lied about you and betrayed you when you were not here. But what's going to happen through that is Peter's going to be transformed into like one of the greatest heroes in church history. His first sermon, 3,000 people converted. I mean, I'm sure his career was all downhill from there, but I mean, you want to talk about a first sermon. Can you imagine it? Austin's in preaching lab right now, learning to preach. Can you imagine his first sermon? 3,000 people get converted. Oh yeah, and by the way, that's not it. It doesn't stop there. Every day his ministry after that, you have more and more and more and more people converted through Peter's ministry. The Lord absolutely keeps his promise and takes this man who is a mess and does something marvelous through him. And interestingly, to showcase to the church uh, how mighty God is, not how mighty Peter is, he takes Peter, who is a mess, and turns him into the kind of building, original building block of the, the early church in this growth. And then he is surpassed by a guy who is an even bigger mess and becomes an even greater success, a guy named Paul, who literally murdered the early church prior to conversion. I mean, that's pretty bad, Right? I mean, Peter, he just lied about Jesus and said he didn't know him, didn't like him. Paul actually killed Christians until he becomes one. What we're seeing here is, again, the the relationship of our God with his people is that he pours out blessing and he pours it out so richly upon his people. His grace is so full that he can take people who are a mess and make them into marvelous creatures of beauty and power and mercy. And friends, if you don't find that encouraging, you probably don't have an accurate understanding of yourself or Jesus. Because the reality of the matter is we like to kind of poke fun at Peter because he is a mess, but honestly, Peter's the one saying the things that most of us have thought. Right? He's like the inner voice in our head. It just says it before we have chance to kind of stop it. It should bring bring great encouragement and great consolation for us as people as we would look at our own lives and say, look, we're discouraged by the sin that still remains, or we're discouraged by the dumb decisions that we've made in the past or in the present or maybe in the future. You know, we, we get weary over the things in the world in which we live in. And I love that Jesus here is showing what kind of God he is. That he is so powerful that he can build a church through this guy. And you know what? The Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still in the business of building churches through men like this. Right? I set us up to already think about that with new members. Look at, look at this church. We're living proof of God doing this. A church that's been a mess for decades. I'm 26 years old, finally get our new building. A pastor and a leadership that God has provided, but it's not our power. 
It's Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, pouring out His blessing on His church and using broken men and women to be redeemed, to be sanctified, and then His tools of ministry all throughout creation. That's why I challenge you to look at those new members and to remember their faces and to have them be for you representations of God's goodness and mercy to you. They're tangible proof of His blessing. What a God of grace. I mean, literally, in the, in the entirety of the early church like this, Peter is the last guy you would trust for this except for Judas. Judas. And perhaps that's just because he talks the most and we actually figure out he's a mess. But our God is so great. In fact, actually, he's so great, not only will uh, you, Peter, be kind of the building block of, of the church, the early church, he's certainly used as that. Now, again, Peter dies. He's uh, replaced by Paul before he dies, and then Peter and Paul both die, and, the, and passes on through the various leaderships and the denominations of the church, and, and God's blessing his people and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But you would think, man, this is a risky gamble. To use guys like this in the church while Jesus is showing his mighty power, what does he even explain? Look, I'm going to build my church through you, but the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, uh, they're not going to be able to prevail against you. Death cannot conquer the church. Sin cannot conquer the church. Hell cannot conquer the church. Maybe able to conquer a pastor. May be able to conquer a, a denomination and may be able to conquer individual churches. And sadly, we watch that happen every other week in this country on TV. Hear of another pastor or another famous Christian wrecking their faith, and you know what? That's going to happen. It's not unexpected. But just because they have sinned or perhaps they've fallen or perhaps even fallen away, the grave cannot beat the church. The devil cannot conquer the church. The church will win. And it's not going to win because of Peter. It's going to win because of Jesus. Jesus is going to give them proof in just a a handful of uh, weeks uh, as it comes to he's going to die on a cross. And he's going to be really dead. And he's going to stay really dead. He's going to remain under the power of the grave for a while. And you would think, oh man, that's it. Look, Hades, hell, it got him. But interestingly, the grave's not powerful enough. And so Jesus raises himself from the dead. It's not big enough. It's not strong enough. It's like a, a dad wrestling with his you know, three or four-year-old son. Right? Dad will let the son pin him for a little bit. Let the son get all excited. Ah, look, I beat dad. I out-wrestled dad at four. Outweighed by 185 pounds. Sure you did, kid. I'll let you think it for a moment. Four seconds later, whoop, upside down, hanging by their feet, you know, having a good time, laughing and cackling. Jesus conquers death the same way. He remains under his power for a time, but he outweighs death.
The amazing thing is that Jesus isn't done and the kingdom of God is going to prevail against all of its enemies. And then you have verse 19. And honestly, I'm going to deal with this verse a little bit more fully in the Sermon on Matthew chapter 18, if Jesus hasn't come back yet. Hope he has. It's a hard passage. Don't really want to preach. The interesting point to be noted here, though, is that Jesus immediately then says to Peter, and I'm going to use you. It's, it's not just that he's going to be a part of God's church, but that interestingly, Jesus' design is to employ his people in service. They're supposed to be doing something. Now, interestingly, Peter's task here is given to him individually here and then to the disciples corporately in two chapters, Matthew 18, 18 is to kind of safeguard the church and to minister um, the, the truth of God at admission to the church itself. But they're used, they're, they're employed for God's service. It's interesting that that's your design too, friends. It's not just that Jesus wants you to believe that he is God. In fact, actually, he commands you to believe that. It's not just that he desires for you to worship. Instead, actually, he commands that you worship. But he is designed it so that you are to be put into practice. That you're to be used that you're to serve, that you're to be involved in the church, that you are to be the body of Christ going out into a lost and dying world. I've said it before, I, I love having the conversation about verse 16. I love telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. But friends, my hours are limited. I'm one man in one place at one time. I work my 50, 55 hours a week. I, I can't work more for that long. You, on the other hand, go into places that I can't go or shouldn't go. You go to your jobs. You go to your women's book club. Don't really need to be there for that one. You go to your neighborhoods. You go to your children. You go to the various places that God calls you to go. And friends, he has designed that for a reason. So that you take this reality everywhere you go. Because friends, so much of the world in which we live, honestly, so much of America today believes Jesus is a good man. Might actually believe he's a great man. But they miss the reality that he is the great God who stepped inside time and space to handle the problem of our sin. That is a reality that is infinitely more important, but one that we don't like to hear sometimes because it steps on our toes. And it tells me that I'm not perfect and I'm not as special as my mommy told me I was. And that I have sin that needs to be taken care of. And I don't like to think of myself as a bad person. I believe it in the back of my mind, but I try to keep that part of my mind really quiet. And friends, that's what you've been tasked to do. To be God's voice in those various places that he's placed you. To help people realize Jesus is 
the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that Jesus is God. Only begotten Son of God before all worlds. We bless you, Father. We bless him, Son. We bless the Spirit, praising you, honoring you. And we ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased to have your Spirit work within us now. Give faith where there is none. Give hope where it's weak. Give joy in believing in the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.